Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing well, except we just had a few tornadoes just come by here in Chicago, which is pretty rare for us. Yeah, I always think of tornadoes like Oklahoma or Kansas, like, you know, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I was worried about clicking my heels together and going somewhere I didn't want to be. But should I have been saying any brachas when it when they flew over us? We've talked about this before, about like for lightning and for thunder. and But I think if you actually... You got to actually see the tornado. And I think if you see the tornado, absolutely, to say a bracha, even though it's very destructive, but lightning's also destructive sometimes. So I'm going to look into that a little bit more. You know, sometimes we don't, but but certainly, but I think you definitely have to see it. You know, not just to hear the warning, you know, on TV. Only but, if you see something, do you say something. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> As it were. John, we've been away for a few weeks. You are, your humor has just gone to a new level. You took some <laughs> rabbi courses. <laughs> well, my kids would say otherwise. But anyway, tell us about, you had just an amazing trip in Israel. I want to hear all about it. One of the people, it was amazing. And Israel is so inspiring. And it. I get a little frustrated because, and I want to hear, because your Jake is in Israel now. And yeah. The State Department, when you go on the State Department site about Israel, they say, you know, warning, dangerous, terrorism, and civil unrest. And yes, there are these mass rallies that we're reading about that really speak of the vibrancy, the democratic vibrancy of this country. And I know that Yes, it does reflect a polarization and and it's where Israel will go is a little bit scary, but but it's not scary from a safety point of view. And we just had the best time. And I feel a little guilty that I didn't spend Saturday night. We spent Saturday night at uh, Machane Yehuda. I went, this was a multi-faith trip. We went with a Muslim couple, Arab American couple a Christian interfaith leader who happened to be Catholic and a staff member of mine and myself, just five of us. And we went everywhere. But the one place we didn't go Saturday night, we went to Machane Yehuda. We hung out with all like the young, wild people that were, you know, that none of the stalls that sell fruit are open, all these wild restaurants. It was noisy and <laughs> crazy kids. And Rather than going to a, a serious rally for democracy, I felt a little bit guilty. <laughs> so basically, you're out there parting it up. I'm, I'm having this image of you at a bar with uh, glow sticks and stuff like that. I assume it wasn't quite like that. No, no. Well, other people, were, we, you know, were with Muslims, so we had no booze the whole time, no drinks. It was really, except on the airplane a little bit when they were we weren't sitting next to anyone but but you know Israel it, it was I just tell you I was so proud of Israel because these are Muslims that have been there for the first time and they were just so impressed with everyone was there the whole old city the Muslim quarter the Christian quarter the Jewish quarter everywhere everyone was out and eating and celebrating and Mamila and first station. And then we went to in Nazareth and Haifa. And it was filled with 
not just Jews, with Arab Israelis or Palestinian Israelis and women with, you know, head coverings. So it was really, and, and they were chatting with everybody. Like most of the people we saw were Arab Israelis uh, walking on the Carmel and Haifa. Uh, we went to a town on the Lebanese border. We went to Jericho. And, you know, it was just an incredible experience. Israel is in its glory. So I realized that all the headlines are miserable and what's going to happen and, and, and America's upset and this and that. And Tom Friedman is saying, you know, I don't know, I'm I'm getting, it's just, I realize Israel's going through a very difficult phase now, but I do agree with Micah Goodman, who spoke months ago about this, that ultimately I think it's going to work out well and, and it's going to be, there'll be a compromise position, but the State Department should not be talking about it's dangerous to go because of civil unrest. Though I did hear that it was challenging in the airport because the protesters were trying to go into the airport. Normally, everyone gets into the airport, but now they ask for boarding passes. And I never have my boarding pass going into Ben Gurion because you got to go through eight security lanes and then they got to go to the counter and doesn't... Right. But boarding pass does you nothing, but I guess. So how is Jake experiencing Israel as a student? He's he's loving it there. He's on the Onward program and is in an internship right now with Abba Ibn Institute doing some interesting work with them. I'm not sure the balance of the think tank versus the beach. You know, I suspect there's more beach, but he's having a blast. His friends are all there. And he actually attended one of the protests. I said, congrats on your first protest. <laughs> and, you know, didn't get the whole skinny from him yet. But, you know, as you're aware, the, the protests surround this issue of rebalancing, at least from Netanyahu's perspective, re rebalancing the, the balance of power between the their Supreme Court, the Knesset, the government. And, and they have dropped certain of the sort of what people consider the more extreme views of it, which is basically the Knesset overriding the right. issues. But it's it's really about and, you know, we're going through the same trouble here in the U.S., you know, around rebalancing or thinking about rebalancing Supreme Court versus Congress and and all of that. So it's kind of interesting that we're running on parallel courses. I I think I was not quite Nostradamus in the last podcast when I said things were calming down. Uh, and then <laughs> one, of, one of our mutual friends came up to me and said, I'm hearing something different. And he was right. So I guess I was being a little bit too optimistic, you know, because I thought. Bibi, having been a former economics minister, would at least be more sensitive to the Israeli stock market and the international rating agencies, which, which are responding negatively towards this turmoil. And I thought Bibi, of all people, would be sensitive to that. And it looks like so far, while they've carved off some of the more extreme elements of the reform plans, the bulk of it at least has passed the first vote. And I think there's two more to right. go in a couple of weeks. Well, you know, it's it's the kind of the opposite of what in America, those uh, that are more liberal think the Supreme Court has too much power and is ruling, you know, and is doing away with Roe v. Wade and with women's reproductive rights and with uh, all sorts of things affirmative action. And whereas in Israel, the more liberal side says we want the Supreme Court to have more power because and I, I really compromise is important because I mean, the look, the problem is you can get it's amazing how far Israel has gone without really a constitution. 
without, I say really, without a constitution. And even the Declaration of Independence was not signed by everybody. It's like not like the American one where everyone, you know, John Hancock and everyone signed and everyone's into it. I mean, you know, for America, you know, this is a central, this is a consensus. And whereas in Israel, you know, they, it was so difficult. They, they punted all these issues. And the first, the Knesset was supposed to vote a year and after its founding in 1948, was supposed to come up with a constitutional convention, which just they, they couldn't do it. And so eventually it catches up with you, but Israel's done pretty well without it. And, and I think, you know, Israel will do okay, you know, and, and I think and they're always naysayers, people trying to, you know, be very negative about things. It's similar to, well, some of the issues on, you know, on, on college campuses that, on the one hand, Jews are thriving. On the other hand, there's there are challenges of anti-Semitism. But so I'm really I came back from this trip. I mean, I get my our Muslim friends were so impressed. And you know, they went to the hotel, and you know, the Muslim woman, her hair was covered. She looked Muslim, and no one bothered her. You know, in Israel, like the most amazing thing is that you like. As long as you're like walking around, no one bothers you. You know, if you're a woman reading Torah, then they go crazy. But if you're just like <laughs> walking around and the Muslims went up and Christians went to the wall, they put notes in the wall. So and actually Nada, the Muslim woman, asked someone to take her picture and a from woman took her picture. So it was just really, I mean, Israel, I would tell everyone, go to Israel now, go to Israel now celebrate it, go to a rally if you want, you know, do whatever you can. I mean, I felt, but it, it's, uh, you know, I just feel it's, it's, it is in its glory, but it has these important issues to work out. I don't want to be blase. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, is it like the night America, the 1950s where, you know, white America had a lot of issues and we were kind of ignoring them. And now it, it's, but you know, who's ignoring them in some ways in Israel Right. It's the Sfaradim, it's the Adon HaMizrach, the people from North Africa and Arab countries who felt that this very kind of white Supreme Court, Ashka's centric Supreme Court, was not representing them and, and the power structure was not representing them. So it's a recalibration and and, and rather than you know, being afraid of it or just being negative about it. It's, I think it's a moment of opportunity. It's a moment of opportunity for Israel. And I'm confident Israel is going to shine. That's, that's my word on that. Well, that's great. I saw some videos of, you may know of David Draymond. He's the lead singer for the band Disturbed, actually a Skokie kid. You know, he looks like a neo-Nazi, but he's a Jewish guy with strong Jewish (laughs) heritage. And he took the, these series of great videos of him because they're performing in Israel. Uh, he had choice words to say about Roger Waters, of course, from uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, but he, he showed yeah. these great videos of him on the beach where he he spun his camera around, his phone around. And there were in this corner, there were Muslims wearing hijabs. In this corner, what, there was a gay pride parade flag. In this corner, there were you know a bunch of people surfing and and. Every color of the rainbow, he said something to the effect that if this is apartheid, we're doing a terrible job at it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's totally what an incredible, you know, it when we were going through the border. So the, the Muslims that we had with us 
were were born in Syria. You know, actually, one was born in Jordan, but Syria. I'm mean, uh, born in Syria, so it didn't look. You know, these passports. Everyone was. You know, Bing, 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 Bing. Everyone's. You know, you right. could imagine at the border coming into the country, but it was an Ethiopian woman who was like the bureaucrat who was sitting there said, ah, sorry, we got to, you know, taking your passport. And then um, luckily we had a letter from the wonderful, wonderful consulate in Chicago, who we yes. love so much, who gave a nice letter about our group. So it really, everyone was very nice. Everyone, you know, let us through and really, but it, you know, it was the, the people that are now part of the establishment, the Ethiopians were the ones saying to, you know, someone new coming in, you know, well, we got to look you, look you over and check you out. So that's interesting. And what, what about from your perspective, did you, when you traveled through some of the Palestinian cities, did you see any issues? Well, I have to say, and I really, that you got to go, the next time you go to, everyone should visit Israel and everyone should visit Israel with their Arab friend because I've never felt so comfortable going around the Damascus Gate and in every Arab place in the Muslim quarter in the city of Nazareth, in, you know, little towns up north near the Lebanese border, everywhere in restaurants in Jericho. I have to say I can only have fruit, but, you know, I never felt so comfortable uh, because I was with uh, Arab uh, Americans who were speaking Arabic to everybody and were you know, it was just a totally different, because normally, look, you know, as a Jew, you get a little, you know, nervous, and and the, when you're hanging out in the Muslim quarter, or the Christian quarter, or Damascus Gate, and actually yeah. my um, colleague at, at the JCRC, AJC, who went with us, he spent Shabbos with his kippah, hanging out in the uh, Muslim and Christian quarters and schmoozing with people and with his kippah on. And, and, you know, in the, in the, in Jerusalem, you see Arab, you know, store, everyone was selling stuff. The, it was all one big shook, the whole Christian, Armenian, Arab, Muslim quarter. But they sell on the one hand, like kind of, you know, PLO t-shirts and right next there is a IDF t-shirts, you know, and, and, you know, it's just a, the, the one thing, the one area I will say, and we know it, many people on this podcast know Israelis and, and, you know, Israelis can be a little bit grouchy. They're not like the Italians that from, I haven't even visited Italy, but from what I hear is like, Oh, hello. Everyone's friendly and nice and <laughs> tourists. They love tourists. They love this. You know, their Israelis can be a little bit like Sabra, right? The little prickly the, pear, prickly pears, and on the outside, not so warm, fuzzy. And it takes a lot, a little bit to get to that sweet interior of the Sabra, the prickly pear. And then they're, you know, great. And and I actually feel, I'll say this, and we might get complaints, but I feel that. It's the Arabs in Israel, whether it's Palestinians or Arabs, that give a tr- certain amount of warmth to Israel, to the country that maybe some of the Jewish residents don't have. And, and you know, Jews have a lot on their minds in Israel and a lot of worries, but there's just that that warmth that is that's so important. And kind of Not that we get a lot of calls anyway, but if, if we ever were going to get calls, it's going to be this podcast. Okay, it's good. You know, look, I feel Al-Aqsa, you know, so we went up on the Temple Mount and that was amazing. And 
you know, it's much easier to go on the Temple Mount now. You know, with well, that was that was going to be my question to you. I I thought you had to be Muslim to go up there. No, so six of the entrances you have only Muslims could go, but the the Maghrabi entrance, which is where that there was a little quarter that abutted the hotel that they removed in '67 to enable space for you know for the mall in front of the hotel. So that gate, the Maghrabi gate, that's sort of that ramp that you see when you're at the hotel. That's yep. where Jews and Christians and non-Muslims can go. And it was very easy. There wasn't a line. And we went around, you know, our our group was like a little slow to get out of the hotel and the breakfast and all that. So I think by the time we got there, it was like 930. And it was. But it that's was, that's understandable because Israeli breakfasts are legendary. It was amazing. Yeah, they are great. They did not disappoint. They did not disappoint. And, you know, and then so we went up and, and it was easy and we met up there. And it was exciting to have Christian, Muslim, Jew there. And it, it, I'm a big advocate for Jews to go up on the Temple Mount. Now, they had these people, the probably radical right-wingers, like hilltop folks, that were gave out little pamphlets that in Hebrew that talked about where you can halachically, legally walk, where we know that the holiest parts of the temple were not, didn't stand. So no, you can't, today, since we're impure, we can't walk on certain parts of the, the holiest parts of the temple. In fact, some of the holiest parts, you could never go. So that's sort of all surrounding the Dome of the Rock. So they have a little guide for you to walk around. And so I was so excited. So I had that little guide and I walked all the way on my own. And but it was and that's interesting. Before you go on, I, I had thought that that whole area, if if you take the restriction literally, was restricted for us. But you're yeah. saying that it's it's not so clear that there are zones. So right. So now who is the one that's more religious? Is it the one the, the Rabbanut, the rabbin has a sign? It is prohibited for any Jew to go up on the Temple Mount because we're impure. But the more religious people, in, from their perspective, say, no, you should go on the Temple Mount, but uh, in these restricted areas. So, but, you know, I'm a big advocate. And again, people feel free to write in that Jews, Christians, and Muslims all be allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. I don't like the status quo. I don't think, you know, if Jews, just prayed a little bit. If it was explained that we're not trying to take it over, I realize that there's a risk there. But I think that in principle, it's just wrong that Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. Now, I do think that where Muslims, I know in Detroit, Arab Americans were so upset where the videos of Israeli police not showing perhaps as much sensitivity as they could have. Now, I understand that there were activists during Ramadan. And John, I don't know if we talked about this because this was really on Pesach time. But yes, Hamas pays these activists to make trouble, to stay in, to collect rocks and firecrackers. And they got to get rid of them. But I don't think taking chairs and smashing people is like the most thought out, carefully strategic way of doing it. Um, I, everything uh, the Israelis do get magnified and twisted and turned. And even if they're doing it for the right reasons, that there has to be some element of the optics of how the yes. world is. Even if they're totally in the right, 
I mean, right. you know, there, there, there has been this history, right, of of Israeli leaders, whether it be Ben Gavir, the national security minister now or uh, throughout history of sort of these provocative, at least from from the Palestinian perspective, provocative, unannounced tours of the Temple Mount. Uh, some have even le- led to antifadas. Right. Well, so, you know, they or they were used as a pretext to. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Um, what's your take on on, you, you know, you had mentioned Jews should go. I mean, is it unduly provocative for a guy like Ben Gavir to to go to the Temple Mount knowing that he's being intentionally provocative? Well, I think he should say, look, I respect the right of the walk to manage the Temple Mount, but. I also think Jews should be allowed to go there. And I think that's an argument. I saw this debate on TV once that the the anti-Israel side doesn't have a real answer to that. You know, like, why is it on? Why are you not allowed to Christians are not allowed to pray there and Jews? And and so I think that in the right context, it shouldn't it's not provocative. And I actually think that more and more Jews are going there and that's not causing, you know, resistance. What really upset people in Detroit. And, and and we heard from even a lot of Arab Israelis who were very happy about their situation in Israel. It was really the lack of respect shown to people on Al-Aqsa. So look, I'm not an expert in public security, but again, I don't think bashing people with chairs is like a well thought out method. And I also, I saw videos of the police pushing people who were praying on the Temple Mount. Again, it might have been that they had to clear different parts or create a perimeter or something, but figure out a way of doing it. Bring in Disney or something. Disney does a lot of crowd control, (laughs) Um, you know, bring them in. So, but it goes back, I think, to the Israeli mentality. Like Israelis are so moral and it's true that pushing someone is much is nothing compared to a terrorist blowing up people in a cafe or or you know the d kids and the mother and shooting people that infinitely worse taking someone's life however the person israelis have to be sensitive that the perception on the temple mount on haram sharif al-aqsa is really tough and they have to work on so that's the same kind of you know, this warm fuzzy that's really say, why do I have to smile? Why do I have to say hello to you? Why do I have to say Shabbat Shalom to anybody? You know, but it creates an atmosphere. And so that's my little campaign for Israel. But it was unbelievable, an unbelievable place. And, well, to and go- it's interesting because I just I just looked up that Dome of the Rock was established in 1023. And here we are at, you know, 2023. And, you know, arguably they they plopped it down on the middle of our holiest site. And so why wouldn't we be able to have access? We were there hundreds of years before that. Right. Even the Muslim tradition holds that the temple was there. Now, they believe the temple was even before Muhammad came, it was still like a Muslim temple. But it was the temple of David and Solomon and and. Yeah, it's really, again, I'm not, I, I don't think that this will be the provocative thing, having a little bit more, letting people pray a little bit more. And and because I think, remember when they moved the embassy to Jerusalem and everyone thought that would be the end of the world and it wasn't. 
So, you know, these things really, you know, and, and, and because I actually think that the message needs to be shared society, we can share. So the message should be that even the Harama Sharif, we can find a way of sharing it. And, you know, and, and that's sort of, that's why I think that the message of Jews can go up and do their prayers and Christians and Muslims, because we want to get that message that even our holiest places we can share in some way. Now, I realize, on the other hand, the Kotel is a little bit of a, a mess because when women are praying in the women's section and and singing, and then people are yelling and screaming. So it still hasn't been resolved. But I was, I this trip also, I was also so emotional. Like I was at the Kotel. For me, sometimes the Western Wall, you know, I like people more than stones, you know, but there to say the on Rosh Chodesh and the new month is coming up next week of Av, that the month of Av, but on the new month, this was three weeks ago, you you say Hallel, these songs from Psalms, songs of praise. And one of them says that the praise is given from the courtyards of the house of God. And when you're at the Western Wall, you are in the courtyard of God, It's in, of the temple. So it was just, wow, it's what a privilege we are to live in this era, not just Jews, but everyone to live with the state of Israel and to be able to come together like that. So it was exciting. Well, and this is an appropriate time to be talking about the temples because this is where we're in the midst, we're taping this in the midst of the three weeks between the uh, 17th of Tammuz, uh, which is a fast day, and uh, Tisha B'Av, which is a major fast day. Well, let's hold off on Tisha B'Av until next time. Ah. We'll take just in time. But, oh, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're enticing people by, uh, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, always leave them wanting more, right? So the, the first temple was between 1000 BC and 586 BC and then destroyed by the Babylonians. Second temple, 515 BC to 70 AD, destroyed by the Romans. Walk us through why the 17th of Tammuz is important, what the three weeks signify, and where do we go from there, and how is this important in light of what we just discussed? Yeah, so they're very much related to the loss of the temple, and we can get into that a little bit even more about, you know, why we're so sad about that. But the the 17th of Tammuz is interesting because it has three parallel events. One is Moses breaking the tablets after the Israelites worshipped the golden calf. So he smashed the tablets. So on one hand, these were tablets that were, you know, written by God, that were chiseled by God. There is a second set of tablets that Moses chisels out and and, and God writes on, but the first set was smashed. The first temple on the 17th of Tammuz is when uh, the sacrifices stopped. And then the second temple, which was like another opportunity, that's on the 17th of Tammuz. That's when the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem and began three weeks of conquest till they really burnt down the whole temple. And, and there were a couple know, others, like Apostomus burned the Torah and an idol was erected. Yes, so those other two, right, right. Yeah, yeah, those, I never know why they have to add those two. I mean, like, okay, it's bad <laughs> enough. Like, and another thing. As if those weren't bad enough, we're going to throw some more in. 
but but you know really it, it I think that that we have to there is a, a tradition that the 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 temple is sometimes called a mishkan mishkan can mean either someone where you a dwelling place for God and that's sad that we don't have that but on the other hand um, mishkan sometimes our rabbis say. It was a mashkon. It was a like a mortgage. In Israel, a modern day word for it, mashkanta, is a mortgage that in, in Hebrew. It's probably Aramaic, but mashkanta. And the idea is that God and took some of the heat off by destroying the temple or Moses breaking the tablets rather than destroying the people. So, so there is this idea. I, I really feel that the yes, the temple was very is an indication of God's presence, is an indication of a certain level. But ultimately, let's work on the Jewish people. Like, how are we doing? And and that's the thing that if we when we talk about rebuilding the temple, I think it's really about these are these are warning signs. We got to get our act together. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, John, do you feel like that anyone pays attention to these warning signs? You know, I... Clear, clearly not. I mean, there was the notion of the second temple was destroyed by uh, sinas chinam of, of baseless hatred uh, among the Jews and that, uh, you know, ostensibly righteous people uh, at the time. We're not treating each other with dignity and respect. And maybe they were spending so much time in the books that, to your point, they forgot about people. And so, you know, in our yeah. tradition, as, as you know better than anyone, this is the time to focus even more so uh, on the notion of being kind to your, certainly of everybody, but also your your fellow Jews. And sometimes we treat our fellow Jews, you know, worse than we do to strangers, right? To yeah. Jews' opinions. You know, one of my questions is we talked about the first and second temple. Why is there not a third temple? And should we be pushing for a third temple? Well, the so the rabbis, like after the destruction of the second temple and and then the defeat 60 years later of, of the Bar Kokhba revolution, the rabbi said, whoa, whoa, hold off. God's going to build a third temple. God's going to come down and build that third temple. And so the view now is that, you know, we we don't do sacrifices. You know, you always hear about some crazy radicals who want to offer the Paschal lamb on on the Temple Mount. And actually, actually, they have some halachic backing. They have some Jewish legal backing. But the rabbi said, and, and our tradition for the last 2000 years has been no more no more Paschal lamb, no more sacrifices, no temple. We're going to focus on, on other things, on the people. The truth is, even Zionism, of course, was, was a radical shift for traditional Judaism because they really said, we're not even going to focus on our own land, on our own country, on our own state. We're just going to be part of the Gentile world, you know, be sort of a part of the ghettos in a Gentile world. And, but Zionism realized that this world, it wasn't working anymore after, you know, really by the, the end of the 19th century and the 20th century. And of course, I hope most people realize that after the Holocaust, we need a state of Israel. We need Zionism. But the rabbis are really against getting back to the temple and saying, like, let's let God 
let God do that. Let's focus on our, you know, again, on our peoplehood, on what we, on the kind of sacrifices that aren't slaughtering an animal, but that are really uh, giving to the Jewish people and giving to the world and, you know, making that, making that difference. Yeah, I suspect to modern Jewish sensibilities, uh, the thought of engaging in animal sacrifice just wouldn't cut it. Well, that's right. I, I, you know, in the, which sort of gets us a little off topic, but, you know, the, there is in, in the Orthodox Sidor and in the conservative prayer book, there's Musaf. Every Shabbat, every new month, or Chodesh, every holiday, there's the additional service that reflects that extra sacrifice that was given and that really focuses it it focuses around at least that sacrifice but i like to say that in the sidur and you know again people can feel free to to write in their comments in the trigger warning here in the sidur where it says and we will we will sacrifice before you like we did in ancient times, it always adds be'ahava, through love. And I think that that's a key word that the rabbis put into the prayers. We're going to do it through love. I don't know how it's going to be. It doesn't talk about we're going to slaughter lambs. It talks about we're going to offer lambs and rams and goats and all these things. But we're going to do it through love. So I know it's a little bit warm, fuzzy, but I didn't put that in. The rabbis put that in. So <laughs> Maybe there were vegetarians. Exactly. And there are traditions like that, that there will be no more sacrifices except for the gratitude offerings. So there are traditions that, you know, and Maimonides is usually brought in to say that, you know, maybe there won't be sacrifice in the future. So I, you know, that's why I don't like getting caught up so much in the Kotel and the Western Wall itself, and even in the Temple Mount, but the idea is what do you do with it? How do you bring harmony to it? How do you bring Jews, Muslims, and Christians and, and in everyone together through the Temple Mount or through Israel, rather than kind of just um, obsessing about the Temple or the Wall? And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, John, on the other hand, when I was there on Rosh Chodesh, or when I was there crying because it, the verses talk about being in the courtyard of, of the temple, on the other hand, there were all these nasty people whistling, because taking whistles and going, hoo, hoo, hoo. Very, and why were they doing it? Because there were women in the women's section, women of the wall, who were singing, who were singing Hallel. So these guys felt that they're destroying the tradition and the end of the world. They had a whistle. So it's so annoying, you know. I mean, and I, I think God looks down. I mean, look, it's from my perspective. I guess these radicals think that God looks down and says, oh, I'm so happy that they're whistling because they're keeping the tradition alive. But well, there, I, were, there was also a video this week of some Haredi guys accosting christians uh who are who are walking past them and it it just it it brought a pit to my stomach i said if this is how some people view judaism that is why some people are anti-semitic because these these young kids were just yelling at these christians who were walking i'm not even sure exactly the circumstances but it 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 just left a bad feeling in my mouth 
Oh my, that's a whole new, there's like this, this new phobia in Israel of that Christians are trying to convert people. And there's always been a current in Israel. And, and I guess nothing's new, you know, the wise King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And I remember the Mormons were building the Mormon center in Jerusalem. And there was this big fear they're going to try to convert everybody. And, and so now, yeah, there's this real anti-Christian thing that's coming out. Uh, when they dedicated the Davidson Center, which is an incredible museum near the uh, southwestern wall of the Kotel, the continuation, the southern continuation of the western wall, there, for some reason, they got into them that Christians were going to were part of the Davidson, and Davidson's a Detroit family. They're like the most Zionist, Jewish, amazing, philanthropic family. So, yeah, I mean, guys, step back. Like, I'm also, hey, I'm a free market guy. Like, if a bunch of Christian missionaries is going to convert all the Jews in Israel to Christianity, okay, I guess... Our Judaism is not very impressive. I mean, gosh. <laughs> right. Then we'd have to up our game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So make make it inspiring. Be like Lubavitch. Be like Chabad. You go from door to door and show people how beautiful Judaism is. Who can yeah. play at that game? And they, they seem to do it, you know, in a way that sells their product very well. Yeah. Yeah. Their Chabad is, God bless them. I mean, you know, again, we could go into another philosophical discussion, theological discussion, but they they hustle. And so rather than yelling and screaming at a bunch of Christian missionaries who are so pro-Israel, we need those Christians, you know, let, you know, just show Judaism be better. Smile at people. Say Shabbat Shalom to someone in the street. That'll help your Judaism much more than throwing a rock or blowing a whistle. Right, exactly. All right, so tell us about, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the 17th of Tom was that, that, first fast and now we've got these three weeks there's restrictions in these three weeks it's almost the inverse of the normal morning process right the normal morning process goes from most intense and then it it gets lighter and lighter this is the opposite it starts off light and it ends at tishabov that we'll talk about the next episode but talk us through those steps that you take to get there yeah it it it's funny that the Jewish people has embraced these sad moments because I was looking up the law, the Shulchan Aruch and the commentary on that. And there's not really that much about these three weeks that there are restrictions for, but the practice is not getting married, not going to parties, not listening to music and not trying to shave a little bit less. And it's straight again. You look at it, and really, the rabbis talked mostly about. We'll talk about this next week. The 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 just the the week of Tisha B'av, not even the nine days, which starts you know next Wednesday. But the but like but it looks like the Jews over time have really embraced some of these rituals. So really, people in general do not get married on the three weeks and many people will not shave for three weeks, many men. And I was even, I heard a discussion about, can you listen to recorded music? Can you listen to, can a kid play piano and lessons? 
first of all, most kids, that is suffering. <laughs> Certainly when I started playing violin, you know, that that was like Tisha B'Av every day for my parents. John, you're very cultured. Violin. Wow. Yeah, wow. Didn't last long. I was last seat in the orchestra. I traded it for a guitar pretty quickly. Yeah. And you led the band. I remember you playing on Purim. That was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, so you're supposed to be like a little bit sadder during these weeks. But honestly, you know, there's just so much sadness in this world. And, and you know, just smile. You know what? Let me say this. You know, be sad. Don't go to parties. Smile a little bit more. Maybe these three weeks, you know. You know, like Jimmy Carter. He always used to smile a lot, you know. Despite the malaise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, didn't work out so well for him and the Shah of Iran and all that. But, you know, trying to make other people happy, even if you're not so happy, trying to make other people happy. You know, the, the there's a Hasidish sort of, you know, mystical understanding reading of that the the month of av that's coming up next next week on wednesday the the phrase is av when av comes in you lessen the joy so okay so yeah these are three weeks and for which is the opposite of what you say in adar for purim exactly right right so this way of reading it, mima'atin, you make less bisimcha, less of joy, but it's kind of a funny way of phrasing it. So one way of saying mima'atin, you make less bisimcha, through joy. Through joy, we take it down a notch, you know, that even that, that we use joy even to give us a sense of mourning. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but the idea is that you always have joy. Sometimes joy makes you happier. Sometimes joy is you do it and then you say, oh, hey, but the temple's destroyed and the Jews are dispersed and Israel is, you know, going through all this stuff. So I like the idea, you know, we have a phrase, mitzvah gedol liop simcha. It's a great song. It's a big mitzvah to always be joyous. So don't worry, like, you know, I, I'm, uh, you can see me, I'm not shaving for, I shaved for before Shabbat to look a little bit nice, a little bit nicer on Shabbat. And, yeah. you know, I listen to recorded music. Sorry, it's a non, I mean, you know, I would, I don't mind that, you know, I don't go to concerts and I don't go to big parties and, but in general, try to spread happiness, try to spread joy. And, and that's a way of helping to, you know, rebuild, helping to inspire God to rebuild the temple, I would think. Well, I always tell everyone who listened that if for no other reason of doing this podcast, it's my weekly dose of optimism from you and you <laughs> continued that tradition. So thank you very much. Let's end on that note. And then unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about Tisha B'av, which I don't know how, let's see how you can pull Simcha out of Tisha B'av. I, I think there's some ways, I think I suspect how you're going to do it. <laughs> but let's keep the audience riveted and waiting for next week. There you go. Take care. Have a, have a great week, John. Everyone, have a great week. Thanks as always. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. 
And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.